All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us this day to celebrate your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the act of worship. Father, thank you for another day to fellowship with this beloved family in the unity of the faith. Thank you so very much, Dad, for loving us, for providing for each of us, for abiding in your promises to care for us. For as your word states, your faithfulness is renewed every morning. We pray, Father, for those unable to be with us this morning, especially for those who truly long to be here. We pray also for those still lost in this world that they humbly receive the gospel and are saved. We do ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 110. Uh, We're deep in the throes of this series. It's been a phenomenal journey, uh, as most of you realize by now. The Spirit's had us concentrating uh, towards the end of this journey. The journey's just about over, as far as I can see in our curriculum. But the Spirit's had us concentrating on grace over the past few lessons. A lot of hard lessons, folks. Uh, And just remember, I go through them just like you go through them. A lot of hard lessons. Uh, A lot of skinned knees and, you know, bruised elbows, so to speak. So He's had us concentrating on his grace over the past few lessons. And it makes sense, too, for the following reason. There's few things worse, I suppose, for the pursuing believer than lopsidedness. Even well-intentioned man has a propensity for lopsidedness when it comes to biblical principles. Therefore, balance is key when it comes to understanding grace. Balance is key when it comes to understanding grace. The problem is, as we've learned, as the Spirit's been highlighting, arrogance takes good things and perverts them. Even as fundamental as grace itself, uh, you might end up in a situation of licentiousness, let's say, which uh, Paul fought tooth and nail Uh, in the book book of Romans about. So man has this affinity, this propensity, so to speak, for lopsidedness when it comes to biblical principles, including grace. Why? Because we're arrogant, and arrogance takes good things and perverts them. On Thursday, I gave you an analogy using the show called the world's strongest man. It seemed like at the time I was the only one that ever remembered this show. Am I the only one? Anthony, you remember it. All right, thank you. The world's strongest man, and I just gave you this picture. One of the events that I remember as a kid 
or these behemoth men holding up a car battery, which roughly weighs about 40 pounds, and they would hold it out like this, and they would time themselves. Whoever could hold it up the longest, of course, won that event. But as the analogy went on Thursday, imagine that your eternal life depended upon your human ability to hold that battery out in front of you. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'll take that burden from you if you only accept my offer to do so. The analogy, of course, was to amplify grace up here on the board. I do not want you to be lopsided on the topic of grace, but for that to be a reality in your soul, you have to understand, well, what is grace and what's the very nature of grace? Well... Let me ask you this, does it take a person any work to simply let go of the battery? Believe it or not, there are people out there that believe that a person's decision even to let go of the self-life would be chalked up against grace, and that's just not scripturally accurate. So the analogy was, does it take a person any work to simply let something go? to let something really heavy go. So the big question was, regarding grace, is it any less grace if a person has to, quote, let go of the burden of trying to save themselves? Of course not. You're just letting go. And that's what free will, frankly, is all about at salvation but it's still a consideration. It still is very real in Scripture. There's a reason why our Lord and Savior said, count the cost, deny self, pick up your cross if you want to follow me. There's a reason that he said those things. Letting go, though, isn't work, my friends, and it does not impinge, so to speak, on grace so is it any less grace if a person has to let go of the burden of trying to save themselves up here on the board? To answer that question, it is not antagonistic to grace, nor is it work to simply let something go that stands between you and God. How could it be, given Jesus himself said, quote, count the cost, deny self, repent, carry your cross for example. How could it be? But as we've learned again, a perversion of grace always results in a perversion of the gospel. A perversion of grace always results in a perversion of the gospel. And my friends, there is no bigger tragedy in time, in life, than to abide or uphold some perversion of the gospel. I mean, let's face it, as believers, presumably you are all saved. The reason he leaves us here is to spread the gospel. <laughs> I mean, that's our great purpose. That was why, that's why we call Matthew 18 or 28, 18 through 20 the Great Commission, because that is our great purpose, even after being saved, to go out to the nations and make disciples. 
So there is no greater perversion than that might, which might end up perverting the gospel itself. And as we've learned, if you have a perverted grace, then you have a perverted gospel. So regarding the faith that God graciously gives us, namely that faith or that faith that saves, we then considered the temptation of Jesus himself and the faith that delivered him. Up here on the board, and again, I'm going somewhat quickly because these are points that we've developed over the past few lessons, so these should be points of review for most of you. The power of grace through faith, God knew from eternity past that Jesus would never fail as the blameless and spotless Lamb, yet Scripture states that He really was tempted, that the potentiality of failure, of actually losing faith, was real. But he was able not to sin. God is not able to sin. But Jesus in his humanity was able not to sin. So scripture says that he really was tempted, which is why we have a high priest that can sympathize with us. By grace through faith, Jesus was delivered despite the potentiality of failure. Otherwise, it wouldn't be temptation. So, in the same way, God's grace ensures the potential never actually comes to fruition regarding any of His promises, especially regarding salvation and eternal security. Again, God's grace ensures the potential never actually comes to fruition regarding any of His promises. If He says He saved you, you're saved. You're not going to lose the faith that saves. And there are multiple, let's call them devices, in which He uses to ensure these things. One that we noted was He's never going to let you be tempted beyond that which you are able to stand. But rather, He's going to give you a way of escape even. Why would He have to do that if the potentiality wasn't there? And here's the Whopper principle, folks, that we learned and sort of concluded on Thursday. God ensures our faith never fails. Now, the presumption, of course, is that you have said faith. You don't have it, and it's human faith. Well, good luck holding up the battery. Because that will fail. You will grow weary with that kind of faith. So this is the faith we're talking about, God-given faith by grace. God ensures our faith never fails. This is a real, ever-present reality. And focus on the word activity, even. A lot of people think, well, I'm saved, that's a, that's a past thing. No, the Spirit's been teaching us for months and months now that God saves us. He keeps us saved daily. And when we realize that, which is described in Scripture that way, we have a much greater appreciation for our Father who loves us, whose activity is because of that love. So this is a, a real, ever-present reality and activity. He ensures 
that his children never lose faith. He not only saves us daily, but he actively ensures our faith never fails through a variety of ways. And I was thinking about this, just to, you know, how can I teach this? There's no perfect or pure or, you know, man-made parable that I could come up with, but I came up with one. (laughs) So I'm calling this parable, same contract, same person, same outcome, but a different perspective. Same contract, same person, same outcome, but a different perspective. Someone who's known you since you were a baby, but whom you don't really know all that well, decides to pay for your college tuition in full. It's a pretty big promise, so the person sends you a physical contract to sign, accepting the simple gift from them. When the certified letter arrives, you open it up, you find the contract, and you realize the benefactor has already signed the contract. In fact, you have to rub your eyes a bit because the date next to his signature shows that it was signed the day you were born, 18 years prior. So you scratch your head, but the contract is legitimate and binding. So you sign it. All summer long between your senior year of high school and your freshman year of college, you're waiting for someone to pop out of the bushes and say, April Fools! But the contract seems to hold, and indeed it does. So fast forward a couple of years, it's your junior year of college and you're absolutely enamored with the things you've been learning, and you feel truly blessed. But part of you is still waiting for the hammer to drop. It's just too good. And the admissions folks to call you up saying, there's been a problem. The contract is now null and void. You need to go home. So you go to the admissions office every so often, asking if you have anything to worry about. And eventually, after a few visits, word word gets back to your benefactor. So the benefactor requests a meeting with you. And when you meet with him, he slides his copy of the contract that you signed across the table and says, same contract, right? And you look at it and then at him and say, yes, uh, I just can't believe how gracious you've been to me. I just, and he cuts you off. He says, I am a man of integrity, and I've never broken a contract ever. So please rest assured, on this basis alone, you ought never fear losing this blessing It's yours. But then you notice something more in this man's eyes, something far beyond the cold ink and paper between you. 
And before you can respond to what you see, he adds, I want you to know something and please listen closely. I sent you this contract as an added sense of security for you, not me. For I know my own character and therefore do not need a contract to abide by. So you cock your head as if a dog hearing a whistle. And he continues, the contract isn't necessary, but I knew that its presence would give you a sense of security as you went through college. But now that you're a junior, I'd like to tell you the real reason you ought never fear losing this blessing blessing I've given you. I love you. I'm your father. Shortly after you were born, your mother left me, and to date she says she hates me. Having built another life with another man, the one you've called dad all these years. But the day you turned 18, I was able to contact you as an adult and give you something as a token of my true love for you. You see, I never back out of the contract because this is something I wanted more than anything to do for you out of love. Stunned, you sit back and realize that this man isn't joking not in the least. You realize that since placing the contract on the table, he's never once looked back at it. And you realize it's because the contract isn't that important to him. What's important is that you understand why he wanted to bless you, and you realize it's love. Over the years, your relationship with this man grows into something truly special, And your insecurities dwindle the more you realize his genuine love for you. Again, this parable is called same contract, same person, same outcome, but a different perspective. Did the contract ever change? No. Did the person, the benefactor, ever change? No. Did the outcome ever change? No. But your perspective did. And that, my friends, makes all the difference in the world. You went from clinging to the veracity of a contract to the fatherly love of a person. This, my friends, is what the Spirit's been trying to teach us about God's grace in salvation and the eternal nature of it. Up here on the board. God's perspective on salvation, while the Bible speaks plainly about the integrity of God never failing us, we have an even greater appreciation knowing that God keeps us saved because He loves us. God keeps us saved because He loves us. And as touching as some of this may be, I want you to know that I'm not commissioned to, quote, make up such parables to get you all emotionally charged. That may happen. But what I want you to see in Scripture is the love that your benefactor, the benefactor, has for you. 
I don't want you to simply go through life on the premise of a contract, for that will leave you cold-hearted, maybe grateful, like the freshman, sophomore years in the parable, but lacking the why. And frankly, the why is everything here. So please don't miss it. So says Scripture. Go to Romans 5, 1. Romans 5, 1. I just don't want you to miss it. I want you to see what Scripture says, that God saves us daily, not just because He has a contract. Sure, we could understand the integrity of God. We can understand that He makes promises and that through His perfect integrity, He's never going to break a single promise. We know that. But why? Why would He do all these things for us? Why would He present to us this contract? Because He loves us. And a father, a good father, wants his children to have peace, even on earth. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, there's our faith, He ensures that that faith never fails, Having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. What an incredible verse. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our salvation, my friends, is then secured. But now we are getting a greater glimpse, a greater understanding of why. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though Perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. Don't miss that. Sure, there are promises. Sure, there's a sense of contractual obligation that we might even go to the throne of grace boldly with. You promised this, Lord. And He'll say, yes, I did. You promised this too. Yes, I did. And I will not... Go back on my promises. But you're missing the point, my child. I want you to know why I made said promises. When you come boldly to me, I don't want you just to stand before me with your arms crossed. I want you to hop up on my lap. Abba, Father, I want you to understand why I gave you those contracts, why I've been blessing you out all those years. I want you to move from childlike things to adult-like things. I want you to understand my grace my love. Verse 8, 
But God demonstrates. He loves to demonstrate His love. He demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 5, we see something up here on the board. We are members of a family, folks. I mean, should I have to uh, sign contracts with Sean back there? Sean, I hereby state I will never do this or that. And I promise, should I have to do that? Or should he be able to look at his own father and say, I trust that man because I know he loves me. Which one has a greater sense of appreciation? Calling on a sheet of paper or calling on the veracity of the man? This is what God's been saying. You're my child. Each member of the Godhead is involved even in securing our salvation. We're family. God loves us and desires that we understand that salvation is a family matter. He says, I'm not letting you go. How about that? I'm not going to let you go. Jesus Christ said, I lost not one. We're family. That's a far cry from some ink on paper. God loves us and desires that we understand that salvation is a family matter, not a contractual one, though God certainly honors His contracts. So I need you all to promise me that you will let this truth sink into your souls. I'd like a contract, please. <laughs> Foolish, right? Foolish for a man that loves you to ever request that. Wouldn't you be shocked if you got an email tonight? Hey, this is Pastor Ed. Just wanted to make sure you were going to let this sink into your soul. Sign, sign here and send it back. Fax, email, whatever you'd like. So I do need you to promise me that. Know that it's my job to, quote, water the soil, like Paul says of Apollos in 1 Corinthians 3.6. I just want the word to sink in. I want the soil, your soil, to be conditioned so that it's receptive to these things. Why? Because I want you to have peace. I don't want you to go through life thinking the only reason you're saved is because God has some contract with you. I want you to understand the point on the board as well as this one also. One of the most magnificent truths of all, for all, of all for believers is knowing that by the integrity and merits of Jesus Christ, we remain saved. We remain saved. How lovely to know that He won't let us go. I don't know about you, but that's, that just gives me a sense of peace 
a sense of almost unbounded gratitude. The more I grow in His grace and knowledge, the more I realize how very much He's done and does for me. If I'm saved daily, then guess what? Every moment of every day, He's protecting me from losing faith. I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful for that. And I want to know why. And when I read Scripture and it says, because I love you, I want you to have peace. Well, that just builds me up. So I want you to find peace by receiving faith and humility by grace. One of the great passages, I believe, in Scripture of humility is in Luke 7. Go to Luke 7.50. We read the whole of it last time, but I want to read sort of the punchline, if you would, on our study. Luke 7, verse 50. As the story goes, this was of the woman who was wiping our Lord's feet with her hair. And they were wet because of her tears. Luke 7.50 And he said, Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. So we know there's a saving faith in Scripture. We also know that God never lets that faith fail. Go in peace. Do not miss the proximity of those two statements. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As we just noted in Romans 5.1 as well, which said, having been justified by faith, we have peace. We rightly conclude up here on the board that peace then is the result of true faith. There is such a thing as fleeting peace. There is such a thing as a counterfeit peace. But true faith produces real fruit. Think of Galatians 5:22 and 23. Peace is one of the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Peace is the result of true faith. And when you begin to realize that God keeps you saved, not simply because of the integrity he has to his promises, but because he loves you, it's then that you begin to truly appreciate all that He's done and continues to do because of His love for you. Same person, or same contract, same person, same outcome, right? If you're saved, you know you're already going to heaven. You already have eternal life. But when your perspective changes the rest of Scripture pops. You no longer look at passages that talk or even command you to pray without ceasing or give thanks in all things because that's what's pleasing to God. Those things have meaning now. They're not burdensome. You can't wait to pray. You can't wait to give thanksgiving or supplication. You cannot wait 
to enjoy, to be enraptured in His love. That's a totally different experience, experiential sanctification. It's a totally different experience than living by some contract. So it's then that you'll begin to truly appreciate all that He's done and continues to do because of His love for you. And isn't that exactly what we'd expect from a perfect Father? Indeed. This is the perspective He wants us to have when we consider the loftier topics, such as those that we have been or that have been guiding our mainstream studies now for months. For example, we've already done this good work. This is our, I like to call it our working framework. On salvation, well, we surveyed many, many passages to ferret out the details of this one slide. We know that on the left, God's perspective is that, hey, listen, I'm going to save you from sin. From our perspective, it's positional, experiential, or ultimate. From the penalty of it, positionally speaking, from the power of it, experientially speaking, and then from the very presence of sin, ultimately speaking. But at the end of the day, all he's really doing when he's sanctifying us is giving us his perspective. Because God's not bound by the construct of time. I just want you to think of it much more simply. I want you to know, regardless of the tense, put that aside just for a second. It's all good. Why am I saving you? Why? Well, from my perspective, being your father, I love you. I don't want you to be little stiffs that come to me as little stiffs. Um, excuse me, Dad. says right here. See, right after, you know, uh, line three, statement four, says that you promised me this thing. I don't want that. I want you to love me. We love because what? He first loved us. The other perspective that we've been working on for a long time, and that's where we find our studies as of late, experientially speaking, our sanctification perspectives. God saves and sanctifies. That's our title, right? Salvation, the gospel, salvation, sanctification. So God also sanctifies us, and from His perspective, He's going to set us apart. That's what He wants to do. Of course, we, under the construct of time, see things possibly as phases. Positionally, we have imputed righteousness, there's a judicial aspect of that. Experientially, we call that imparted righteousness. There's the daily walk. And then ultimately, there's a completed righteousness, and that's the eternal state of sanctification. But again, it's the same thing. He's saying, I just want you to understand that if I say I'm going to sanctify you, guess what? <laughs> I'm going to sanctify you. I want you to see it that way. It's good that you understand all the nuances and, you know, the mechanics. Uh, because I had my apostles and the writers even in the New Testament 
on constant guard, my shepherds on constant guard, fighting the good fight, making sure that the simple, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ is not hijacked. So it's good that you have, are ready to give a defense. So it's all good. But I need you to understand why. And it's not difficult. I love you. So please don't miss synthesizing this working framework with the first part of this morning's lesson. I'll give you this in addition. Your, and this is God's perspective, your salvation and sanctification are the results of God's good work. That's grace. He doesn't do these things because he has to. Rather, he does them because he wants to. He didn't have to save us, but he did. And what does Scripture say? For God so what? Loves the world. It doesn't say for God so has a contract. It says God so loves the world that he sent his son. He does these things because he wants to. That's the change of perspective. Same contract, same person, same outcome, but a different perspective. If you're saved, you're going to heaven. But should that be the walk that you live, that you abide in, in time, given the simple fact that you have eternal life right now? No. I want you to know why, he says. Because I want to. Because I love you. And the more we live in this reality, the greater our appreciation for Scripture, such as, go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16, such as, you know, when you're the contractual person, and don't be down on yourself if you're still, you know, don't fake it until you make it, like I like to say. You know, if you're still the, the contract monger, so be it. So be it. We've all been there. So don't be condemned. This message is supposed to be edifying to you, not condemning. We're not dismissing the quote-unquote contracts that God has with us. Of course not. But what he's saying is I want you to see it more. You know, like James would say, he gives a greater grace. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 well, this means something now. First, did I not say that? I did, right? Well, what's wrong? <laughs> well, this means something. Wait a minute. How can I rejoice with a piece of paper? Well, I get to go to college, you see. I get eternal life. Yeah, so says the integrity of Scripture. That's all fine and good, but come on. Let's really get down to the nuts and bolts here. Let's talk brass tacks. How am I going to rejoice always if my entire relationship with God is contractual? There's no relationship in a contract. Heck, if you've been around, if you've been in any walk of business whatsoever in life, you know that the contract only is good as what? The person. I think I wrote a blog on that. Some of you are like, you write blogs? 
Verse 16, rejoice always. Why? Because God loves you. That's why. How about that? The God of the universe, your creator, loves you so much. He saved you while you were yet a sinner. So that he could demonstrate his love to you. He said, sure, sure, I'll sign the contract. Here. I'll give you the contract. You got my word. But I don't want you to live just on a contract. How are you going to rejoice that way? Well, that's what he's trying to give you. He's trying to change your perspective. Just because the outcome's the same, with a different perspective, everything changes. You actually understand. You begin living rejoice always. You begin living pray without ceasing. You begin living the gospel reality. And therefore, as verse 18 says, in everything give thanks. Aren't you, who here, if you're truly saved, isn't ultimately just overwhelmed with gratitude that you were saved? That by no other thing other than God's grace, you get to spend eternity with Him. I mean, that alone is enough to satisfy verse 18. Is it not? Hey, listen, Dad, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just glad I'm saved. I'm just glad you didn't give up on me like everybody else in my life has. Some of you are saying, yep, even my own parents gave up on me left me out to dry. I don't know. I don't mean I'm not I don't have anybody in in mind so don't send me hate mail. Maybe your own parents did that to you. Maybe your so-called best friends have just stabbed you in the back. Maybe everybody has forsaken you, but there oh there is the Lord God who says I'm never going to forsake you. I just saved you. <laughs> that alone should be enough. But what about verse 16? Oh, I love you. What about 17? Well, then I want to pray to you. Prayer is worship. I want to pray to you. I want to tell you how grateful I am for you, Father, all day, every day. And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to abide in His love. The more we understand the principles behind this morning's lesson, the more we understand Paul's sentiments too. Go to Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16. I don't know, Sue, but I just looked at my clock here on my iPad, and somehow it's on California time. Real nice. <laughs> I had to check. I'm like, is what? I'm like, it's three hours behind. Sue brings her time zone with her. <laughs> Paul said this, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live, live by faith. I don't know what else to say about that. Here's some additional scripture that points to what it means to live by faith. Go to Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. And do not forget where we just came from. Do not forget that when you love Him, when you realize how much He's done for you, when it transcends just ink and paper and contracts, that you really do begin living a life of faith and peace and contentment. And you'll gladly do as Romans 12.1 says. It moves from some adolescent oppressive command to something you want to do. And this is what happens, and this is what He wants for you in sanctification. That's why He wants you to realize over time the why behind all the promises. Romans 12.1 Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that's that Greek word, peristemi, present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, your greatest form of worship is to be all in. Dad, can I just jump up on your lap whenever I want? You got it. I'm all in. Doesn't get any better than that. Romans 12.1 becomes who you are. It becomes your sanctification. You're not worried about it like a little adolescent brat. Oh, here we go again. Now I've got to give my whole body for a sacrifice. <sighs> it's, I mean, it's, it's, your, it's your very nature. You've been changed. You want to do these things. And the more you understand and appreciate Him, the more you do these things. I mean, what don't you do for love? And it's funny because everybody will read, you know, romance novels and the things we do for love. And love has conquered countries and brought great governments down. It's true. But then when it comes to God, we scratch our heads. I wonder why that is. Go to Ephesians 4.1. How about this? Ephesians 4, verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Oh, here we go again. Worthy of the calling. Such a burden. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you for heaven, but, you know, I got people to see and, you know, hands to shake and babies to kiss and, you know. I got life down here. That's not your attitude at all. If you really are growing in these lessons the way I'm hoping and praying that you are, these things are not burdensome at all. Who said my burden, my yoke is easy, my burden is light? Who said that? Jesus Christ. 
as I've been teaching for about a year now, the Spirit's trying to give us all the heavenly perspective. Go to Colossians 3.1. Colossians 3, verse 1. That's all he's trying to do. He's not trying to force-feed you into some fake or counterfeit brand of love. It's not some new religious tactic. He's saying, I love you. To me, says God, this is about a relationship. If I wanted a bunch of robots, I could have built them. I want you to love me back. And I know, because I built you, when you love me back, you will rejoice. You will pray. You will be thankful, always. And that, my friends, will bring glory to me, says God. Colossians 3.1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's your perspective. Keep seeking the things above. That's your perspective. This is the perfect place, by the way, for our transition from experiential sanctification to ultimate sanctification. I know, can you believe it? <laughs> A segue. Keep seeking the things above. I mean, our hope is in our ultimate sanctification. Amen? That's what we're looking forward to. But we know that now. And he's saying, this is why you can trust me on that. And the more you understand those things to be true, not only does your hope increase on things future, but your hope and your peace and contentment increase now. So this is the perfect time for that transition, for our hope even now is based on our future deliverance. This is a base theme we see throughout the Bible, especially for those of the faith, that faith is what gives us hope in things future. And because we possess that hope, life today is not just bearable, but peaceful. You just have a contract. It might be bearable. But if you understand the truth about God's love, then you are going to find peace as well. Go to Hebrews 11.1, 1, the so-called Hall of Fame of Faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. You've got to have that faith, though, my friends. But here's the nice thing about faith. If you have it and it's tested, God will ensure that it won't be tested beyond that which you are able. And that, my friends, is also a practical form of peace. Isn't it nice to know that because He loves you, He's going to protect you? But you've got to have faith. Hebrews 11.1 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. 
Look at verse 6. Verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Go to verse 13. 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. Well, we have some things that we haven't received yet. They are promises. They are a distance. We might think of ultimate sanctification that way. I mean, who can't wait to be ultimately sanctified? I mean, is anybody, some of you are like, I kind of like my flesh. <laughs> who can't? Seriously. As Paul would say, you know, who will free me from this body of death, right? The shackle, being shackled to the dead man. Who can't wait till ultimate sanctification? It's not a novel concept. It's not a novel concept at all to wait to be delivered on a promise from God. But you have peace because you have faith. And that's what you see in Hebrews 11. These people had a certain peace because they had faith. And in some aspects, they didn't receive the promises at all. Verse 39, go there. Verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Not a novel concept, my friends, that God, our Father who loves us, asks us to be patient, to be content in what He has chosen to give us. That is perspective. And that's where we find deliverance. I'll give you the New Living on Colossians 3.1, just regarding perspective up here on the board. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Set your sights on the realities of heaven. They're no less real. Look at Hebrews 11.1 1 again. They're no less real because they're by faith where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Again, we are now back to where we left off many lessons ago up here on the board. We've been on that second bullet on the right, obviously on sanctification perspectives. Experiential sanctification has been our topic for a very long time. Makes a lot of sense because here we are. Most of us already are beyond this positional sanctification phase, so to speak. But life is. This is experiential sanctification. This is where it happens. And life is real, and it's here, and it's in our face. And so we've spent a lot of time on that. don't want you to miss the reason why. So just some final perspective before we focus specifically on ultimate sanctification Ask yourselves, who prompted you to be here this morning? Who prompted you to be here this morning? If you're rightly related to God, you'll say the Holy Spirit. 
Who inspired the Word of God? The same Spirit, of course. And who's empowering the spiritual gift that is being employed to your benefit right now from this pulpit? The same Spirit. So, the activity behind being sanctified experientially is never void of God the Holy Spirit. I often use the catchy phrase, the dynamic spiritual life, to describe the Spirit's fundamental role in our lives, and for good cause, because Scripture is profoundly clear on the subject of the Spirit's power in our lives. Of course, it's by grace. So before we depart from the topic of experiential or progressive sanctification, let us be reminded of the Spirit's ever-present ministry in all of this. And I'm going to borrow from Baker's Dictionary. They just did a nice job of summarizing the Spirit's ministry in experiential sanctification. Up here on the board, the Holy Spirit is the dynamic of sanctification. Jesus said that He had to go away so that the Holy Spirit would indwell believers, John 14, 16-20. The Holy Spirit is so named not because He is more holy than the Father and the Son, but because His specific ministry vis-a-vis salvation is sanctification. Romans 15, 16, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, and 1 Peter 1, 2. Let's look at some of those scriptures referenced here. Go to John 14, 16. So what the Spirit's saying is, as we depart from experiential sanctification, please do not forget who is fundamental to all of it, who is ministering to us, even through this gift right now. John 14, 16. Again, John 14, 16, I will ask the Father, this is Jesus, of course, and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not, it does, does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be with you. Or be in you. Again, that's the first reference to the principle on the board. Go to also 2 Thessalonians 2.13 regarding the specific ministry of the Spirit in sanctification. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And I like that phrase, the Holy Spirit is the dynamic of sanctification. The dynamic. And it makes me think of the dynamic spiritual life. And don't ask me to draw it. I used to try to draw stuff. Do you remember? Some of you are like, oh yeah. <laughs> I have like 140 diagrams that, I don't know, maybe I should just make some cards and make like a little house of cards out of them or something because they, they're not much use to me anymore. I used to try to draw everything because I'm a picture guy, you know what I mean? But I found that there's just the human error is ever present. And there's just some things that 
they're supernatural. What do you want me to say? All I know is what Scripture says. And it's true. The Holy Spirit is involved in your sanctification. Can I draw that? I can try, but I'm going to butcher it. Stop nodding your heads. <laughs> oh, yeah, we remember. <laughs> Have a little grace, Diane. <laughs> Anyways, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So the Spirit really is involved in your sanctification. Go to 1 Peter 1.2. 1 Peter 1.2. I mean, he inspired this. He inspired this lesson. He inspired the Scripture. That's the basis of this lesson. He empowers the spiritual gifts. He empowers your understanding. He's working with your spirit right now, your personal spirit, your human spirit right now to make sense of these things. He's digging deep in your soul. He's saying, you see this? I'm the one that can teach you. The bald guy, he's just a bus driver. Look at that over there. Look at that over there. That's my job. That's as good as it gets. Why don't you munch on some of that grass over there, you stupid sheep? <laughs> over there! Mm, mm, mm. That's my job. Lovely for me, right? <laughs> First Peter 1.2 According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. I can't sanctify you. You can't sanctify you, but the Spirit can. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, there's that word again. I hate that word, obey. Maybe you're still an adolescent. Maybe you're still under contract. It says right here, Maybe that's you. Maybe once you grow up and realize how much God truly loves you, you'll want to obey. But that, again, is not an overnight process, as we know. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and what? Peace be yours in the fullest measure. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Again, the point on the board, the Holy Spirit is the dynamic of sanctification. Jesus said that he had to go away so that the Holy Spirit would indwell believers. The Holy Spirit is so named, not because he is more holy than the Father and the Son, but because his specific ministry vis-a-vis -vis salvation is sanctification. Let's continue with this final survey from Baker's up here on the board. The spirit that inspired the word of God now uses it to sanctify. We know that's how he works. It's why we take in the word of God, so that it can be watered by the spirit himself. 
the Spirit that inspired the Word of God now uses it to sanctify. Jesus, therefore, prayed concerning his own, quote, sanctify them by the truth, John 17, 17. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, John 16, 13. Go to John 7, 15. We'll look at that. John 7, 15. So, you know, the Spirit's a pretty smart person. He says, I'm going to inspire the word, and then I'm going to use that word in my own personal ministry to those who are saved so that I may sanctify them. John 7, 15. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. The Spirit uses the word. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. Why? Because the Spirit uses the word. What scriptures say? I will bring into remembrance. That's the Spirit. What's He bring into remembrance? Scripture. Who inspired Scripture? He did. Whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Go to John 16, 13. John 16, 13. I'll be closing here shortly. <clears throat> My clock's all messed up. It says 810. Did you, have, you really had to bring the time zone with you? I really have no idea how that changed. Just, I'm not joking. It was right last time I was up here. Just saying. John 16, 13, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. That's the Spirit's ministry. And now one more conclusive statement about the Holy Spirit's ministry in our experiential sanctification, almost like the Spirit saying, Hey, it's all fine, great, and dandy. You learned all these things about sanctification. But do not forget my ministry. Do not forget that none of this is possible without my ministry in your life. Up here on the board, the Holy Spirit not only is the restoration of the presence of God in believers, He also equips believers to serve the church and the world as the fruit of the Spirit are the result of the reproduction of godly character in believers Galatians 5, 22 to 23. So the gifts of the Spirit, Romans 12, 4 to 6, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, are the means by which believers serve others. We all know that Galatians 5, 22 reads, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Why don't you go to Romans 12.4. We'll look at that. Romans 12.4. 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 Romans 12
No, yeah, you know what? For the sake of time, go to 1 Corinthians 12.4. Sorry. Go to 1 Corinthians 12.4. Again, all the Spirit's saying is, listen, I'm going to inspire this thing called spiritual, the spiritual life. I'm even going to give you my fruit. I'm going to empower that. I'm also going to give you gifts that there's no way. There's no way. This jackass could be doing this if it wasn't for God the Holy Spirit. Amen, DJ? <laughs> All right. You know. He's known me since I was like, what, probably 12? Poor guy. Right? There's no, oh, you're all laughing, right? How about you? Oh, you're just so special. You see, I help God. I was almost there, and then God, the Holy Spirit, just filled in the cracks. <laughs> what do we know from Scripture? We know that the Spirit's right there with spiritual gifts. Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same what? Spirit. How about verse 7? But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. How about for verse 11? But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. Again, the point on the board, the Holy Spirit not only is the restoration of the presence of God in believers, He also equips believers to serve the church and the world, as the fruit of the Spirit are the result of the reproduction of godly character in believers, so the gifts of the Spirit are the means by which believers serve others. What the Spirit's been conveying at the close of this morning's lesson is simple. Do not forget that your Lord, Jesus Christ, sent the Spirit, not only as a seal, as in Ephesians 4.30, but also as the supernatural minister of the Word of God in your soul through your own spirit, which I have prepared to commune with me, says he. Up here on the board. John 15, 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Please, don't forget that. That's where we're closing. All of that good work and the closing arguments, so to speak, from the Spirit are, don't forget about me. Without me, none of this is possible. Amen? I'll end with this. The dynamic spiritual life, without the Holy Spirit's ministry, there is no spiritual life. If you are saved, you have it always. There's no losing it. He ministers the Word of God to believers, encouraging, empowering, and sanctifying us. Amen? All right. Get the lights, guys. You want to kill the... You're calling me home.
just close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for another day to hear your marvelous word, and for a time of peace and quiet and a place that you ordained from eternity past to exist, this little place on a hill in North Dighton that we call North Christian Church. What a blessing today has been, Father, and For this, we are so very grateful. We pray, Father, that our hearts remain humble and true and ever joyous over the simple fact that we have been promised eternal life, your life. We pray also for those still struggling with their faith, 
that they quit kicking against your will and submit, finding that peace that our Lord has promised his own, a peace that surpasses comprehension, a peace that only you can give by grace through faith. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we do pray, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.